And welcome everyone to Connect Learning TV. This is the first webinar in our August series titled Cultivating Global Entrepreneurial Learners in the Networked Age. I'm John Barroloni, the Community Manager for the Connected Learning Alliance, and I'll be the host for today. And throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we're exploring global examples of practitioners leveraging the tools of the network age to grow, quote unquote, entrepreneurial learners in connected learning environments. And today we're chatting with folks from several of the Hive learning networks throughout the world. And the Hive networks are a growing constellation of communities that are championing digital skills and web literacy through the principles and values of connected learning. Uh, but before we dive into our chat today, let's go over just a couple quick details. Uh, to those of you that are watching live right now, we really welcome your comments and your questions, either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or via the Google Plus event page for today. And we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. And we're also chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using that same connected learning hashtag. And I'd like to give our, our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves. So Joe, do you want to go ahead and start us off? Uh, certainly, yeah, happy to. Um, is that good? Can everybody hear me okay? Yes? Um, good, so I work in Toronto at the Mars Discovery District, which is um, essentially an incubator uh, for entrepreneurs. Um, it's one of the biggest in the world. We've got about 1.5 million square feet here. And our main offering is advice and mentorship to uh, entrepreneurs who come in with all sorts of uh, ideas. Um, and through working with thousands of entrepreneurs in, uh, in Canada, um, we have a good sense of what makes good entrepreneurs, what characteristics and what habits of mind do the most successful startups and the most successful entrepreneurs have? Um, and these are not kind of woolly, nice to have 21st century skills. These are the things that, you know, venture capital partners in Silicon Valley or New York or Chicago uh, need to have in place before they commit funding to a team. Um, and so what we've done with that is we've created. Um, curriculum for youth around kind of entrepreneurial thinking and um, what makes for successful uh, thinkers and makers and hackers in the 21st century. And um, it's something we run in boot camps, it's something we try and um, kind of mash up with regular day-to-day -day classroom teaching in the Toronto District School Board and some of the other boards in the greater Toronto area. Um, and, you know, this is very much a work in progress. This is very much our own entrepreneurial activity, so it changes every week. Um, uh, but trying to infuse these things into a regular school system, things that we do every day with entrepreneurs who come in off the street with great ideas is, uh, is really our focus here. Uh, my own background is as a teacher, uh, as, a, as a high school science teacher, physics, math, a lot of student success. And, uh, and then my adventures took me here to Mars where I've been working on kind of um, more informal um, education projects. So I'll leave it at that and then we can get into some of the details later. Very cool, Joe. Thanks for joining us. And Catherine, you want to go next and kind of talk about some of the typical work that's going on in your Hive community? Sure. So I'm Catherine and I'm the director of the Hive Toronto Learning Network and Mars is actually one of our recent members. Hive Toronto has been around since 2012 when we started really as uh, just doing events to see are there educators and youth serving organizations in Toronto that want to practice connected learning and share their practices and whether they're integrating web literacy already into their youth programmings or they're committing to it, uh, really figuring out does that community exist and Turns out there's a huge community. Um, so since 2012, we've grown from an initial about 20 members to over 40 now. And so we are working on ways to work with educators because we see that as being the key to bringing these opportunities to all youth in the Toronto area. So working with educators to figure out the best ways they can implement this in their programming, whether that's out of school, which a lot of our Hive members tend to be, 
or in-school educators, which so far we've drawn uh, a few educators that are working in schools and really are paving the way um, for this kind of learning in a very curriculum-based, Ontario curriculum-based way. And uh, when this topic came up, I automatically thought of Mars and the work that Joe is doing there because of the programming they're doing with youth, but also the way they're looping in uh, in-school teachers as well to supplement that. So the learning doesn't just stop at the end of the summer for these youth that do their programmings. Thanks, Catherine, and congrats on the growth. That's great. Thank you. And Lindsay, you want to go next? I'm Lindsay Frost-Cleary. I'm with Hive Chattanooga Learning Community. Um, we are, along with Kansas City, um, one of the newest um, communities in Mozilla's Hive network. We have been working in Chattanooga since February of this year through a project with the National Science Foundation and US Ignite called the Gigabit Community Fund, which has used the um, Gigabit networks in Kansas City and Chattanooga to create applications and associated curricula that really leverage these next generation networks to promote connected learning both in the formal and informal education spaces. So these pilots, 17 of them thus far across the two cities, um, have really uh, have been piloted with real life learners in across sectors. So it's been very exciting. That's great. And thanks to you for joining us as well today. And Vanille, do we have you there? Yes. Hi, everyone. This is Vanille from Red High India. So we started uh, High Community with the pop payment last year in Bangalore. So, so we have Mozilla Community India. The good thing is, our community spread across India. And, and we were able to do uh, a lot of teaching events in different parts of the uh, uh, country. And uh, unlike other other cities, one one thing we are working on to build this here. So we, we call ourselves a high here, unlike say like tying uh, uh, up to a particular city or a region. So. We are like acting like an umbrella and working with our partners uh, in the same way like, uh, as for high India. So uh, one, one uh, new thing we're working on this year, uh, this, this uh, second half of the year, is we will have the local chapters. Uh, we will be working uh, with the local teachers. Uh, uh, so this first of the year, we, 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 were, we did some successful uh, events like uh, Vanille, I know that was just a, a little bit garbled just because of the background noise there, but I understand you're saying it's a little bit of a different animal in terms of the high learning network that is countrywide versus just being in a city. So thank you again for joining. And so kind of diving into our first question here, you've heard some of our guests talk about um, this aspect of their Hive Learning community or their Hive Learning network exists in an out-of-school space, um, but there's definitely you know, a, a drive and a tension between making that relevant to either in-school learning or to you know, kids' lives outside of school. So I wanted to get a sense from each of our guests here uh, how you're working on actively building linkages between your out-of-school space and either in-school learning um, or trying to make sure that whatever kids are doing in your space is relevant to their lives outside as well, even if it's just uh, a mental or an intellectual link. Uh, so anyone can feel free to jump in on that question. Sure, I'll start. Can you hear me? Yes, I see nods. Um, 
So a lot of our members work in the out-of-school space, and as a member, everyone is, we, we call it being content neutral, so some of our members really do focus on providing learning code opportunities for youth, and then some of them are like the Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada, not necessarily have a clear link to connected learning and uh, digital literacy. But one of the things that all of our organizations share is that notion that learning is happening all the time. It's happening in school, it's happening out of school, and a lot of our members, uh, even though they operate out of school, they, they operate within uh, schools as well. So one example is uh, Regent Park Youth Media Focus. So that's a center in an underserved community of Toronto that brings um, media-making opportunities to youth. They have a huge lab, uh, youth script and plan and edit TV shows, radio documentaries. They have a TV station that broadcasts lo locally as well as a radio station. And through uh, Hive Toronto, we have a model where we pool funding from outside resources and make it available for collaborations within the network. And so this member, Regent Park Focus, has partnered with another member, Facing History and Ourselves, which works with a lot of teachers in high school around social justice curriculum, one of the courses that is in uh, the Ontario School Board, uh, or the Ontario curriculum, and they partnered to create uh, an opportunity for youth to to create audio documentaries around social justice issues. So it was in line with the curriculum, and they were doing it partially during school hours, having to coordinate with the teachers that were running this programming, but then having the out-of-school experience of going to this lab to create, to edit, uh, and do these interviews as well. And so that's been an amazing, <laughs> there's been some amazing topics that have come out of that, talking about uh, identity, um, what it's like to be to come to Toronto as a refugee, as a young person, and that's something that we even peer, um, paired to adults as well by having uh, a showcase party where a lot of parents came and people from the community, and there was one father that stood up and was like, after the refugee audio documentary, he was like, this is my story, and I can't believe that youth are having the opportunity to use these tools as a way to use their voice. And so that's just one example of the ways that we try to work creatively with amazing educators in school, amazing, amazing educators out of school, and bring those experiences together. Very cool example, Catherine. And Lindsay, you wanted to add on there? Yeah, absolutely. So in Chattanooga, and I believe also in Kansas City, we've seen this very interesting trajectory as the Gigabit Fund project has developed. At first, many of our projects were very technologist-driven, so it was um, a developer designer who had an idea that they wanted to share out into the education space. But as we progress and there's been more community engagement and involvement with these ideas, um, educators have taken ownership over it. At first, we saw a lot of projects that were driven by the aquarium, the library, um, children's museums, the informal education spaces, and then they were piloting and pushing out what they had learned in those spaces to classrooms to test and to share. But now for the first time, um, just in this last round, we have a classroom teacher-driven project um, who he is um, doing water quality monitoring using Arduinos. So it's a very cool project and he's brought in a a big team of informal educators and technologists to help him. So through the pipeline of these projects, we've seen some great um, connections between not only informal and formal education spaces, but also with our local community of technologists. That's awesome. And it looked like Joe wanted to add on there, but <laughs> we'll see if we can get him back into the Hangout. Just want to mention that Arduinos are definitely huge right now in the learning community just in terms of being kind of a, a sandbox tool that you can figure out so many different ways to use them. And I know um, with the Connected Learning Alliance, quick shout out to Pursuitery. Um, there's a lot of learning and co-learning going on with Arduinos over there too. And Joe, let's see if we got you back in here and if you're good to add on to what Lindsay and Catherine were talking about. Nope. <laughs> okay. And uh, Vanille, do we have you? Did you want to add on? Uh, yes. So, so uh, one of the examples was uh, 
so like I said, we have uh, yeah yet to have a solid curriculum, but it, it's more more of a style. So for example, in some parts of uh, uh, the cities like Monaghan, uh, like a team that the laptops to an orphanage and they thought it was what it could be, so, uh, what 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 it can do. Uh, so they spent like uh, two days at that uh, orphanage and they thought about uh, Very cool. Thanks, Sunil. And Joe, looks like we got you back in. Do you want to share how you're kind of building those bridges between in school and out of school? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, um, you know, we had we had a, a challenge here at Mars, as do many of the programs that run outside of the school system, on how do we scale it within. Um, and and you know, quickly realized that of course that it looks very different. It looks very very different in school as out of school. Uh, for one thing, um, the kind of value proposition to bring to the, the teachers who are going to be executing programming, or to the schools who are going to be hosting programming. Um, you know, they need a very different set of values. They need to know that this is going to save them time, not add time. Ideally, save them money. I mean, that doesn't always happen, but... Um, and they need to know that, um, for instance, for teachers, it's really important that they know how to assess what's happening. Um, for us in the kind of um, self-directed learning communities, I mean, we just kind of know learning when we see it and um, are happy with the ambiguity and are happy just tracking the you know good ideas and connections but for teachers that's not enough and there needs to be kind of serious scaffolding added so teachers can assess so that um, those principals can show their bosses at, at, a, at a district level that there's a return on investment on some sort of program uh, by whatever metrics they measure so that's kind of really practical stuff um, one of the things that we did here at Mars is when we when we started looking at how we were going to expand our own kind of entrepreneurial thinking programming into schools, we of course realized that we couldn't host people here at our facilities because um, it costs a lot of money to run programs here. Um, and of course, and so you know, we decided we would train teachers and go and kind of train the trainer model, which is what many people do. Um, and one of the things we did is we listened carefully to the Toronto District School Board here, which is to say that they didn't have a lot of cash to pay for programming, but one of the things that they could do was free up funds to 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 pay teachers. Um, to, so, like, so teacher release time is something they could pay for internally, and that was easy, fairly easy for them to do. So instead of looking for cash, we basically said, okay, um, we found eight kind of really early adopter teachers who were really interested in this kind of thing and we got the board to release them so that they're actually housed here at Mars for four weeks as teachers in residence um, and it's essentially a way it's kind of like the uh, the embedded journalist program where they kind of watch what we do uh, they participate in some of the youth activities we run uh, and then they're given kind of protected time to write curriculum and write use cases that would work in their own courses um, so in that way, we kind of used uh, the, the district's kind of um, budget structure 
kind of to our advantage and we said okay you can't give us cash but you can give us bodies you can give us teachers so let's work with those eight and then next year those eight need to sponsor another eight or like sponsor kind of mentor another eight and in that way we hope that the that the curriculum will spread instead of just kind of trying to market to all the teachers in the district um, we kind of take a very very um, directed approach and just do a few teachers at a time uh, by embedding them you know and once they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they they understand what this feels like the inquiry-based process and the entrepreneurial process then they're really comfortable next year um, actually implementing and one of the things that we also uh, said is that with the with the district is that we wouldn't do this unless uh, they agreed to say one month or pardon me one day per month of release time in the next school year where we could provide continual professional development support because as we know you know we often just try and throw things over the wall into the into the school districts and hope they they stick and they never do because there isn't the support uh, ongoing support um, high touch support like somebody visiting your school or picking up the phone um, to make it really work because this change for teachers is quite fundamental I don't think we can underestimate that going from a kind of highly structured teacher in charge model um, to a model that acknowledges the teacher is not at the center anymore it's really really hard to do uh, because we've all grown up with the last 20 years of one kind of type of learning and uh, you know we can experiment in the margins and it's a lot of fun but in a classroom it's a scary thing for teachers to do so I'll leave it at there and that's a fair point it seems you know especially in the the past few years change has kind of been the only constant when it comes to you know teaching pedagogy and and tools and ed tech and and all that um, but Catherine I, I think you had something you wanted to add on to Joe's point there right it I think it's very easy to forget that Teachers are learners, too. <laughs> With all of this, they're having to learn while doing a job, uh, and that goes for out-of-school educators as well, and that is challenging. I often use the example of when we do youth-facing events, uh, young people are totally ready to try something new, they're ready to break something, they're ready to make mistakes, uh, whereas when we do adult-facing events, it's a little bit more hesitant and not wanting to take risks. Uh, so I think it's important to realize that we're eventually impacting youth, but we need to be able to communicate and work with teachers and educators and with the barriers and challenges they face today. And I was actually, I had the chance to visit the Teachers in Residence program that Joe was speaking about last week. And something that came up there, which comes up at a lot of different educator workshops, is expert versus facilitator. How much do you have to know about these technologies? What, do you, what experience do you have to know before you are qualified to teach them to a young person, regardless of age? And so shifting and really examining that assumption uh, is challenging for everyone involved. Um, so with everything changing in ed tech, it seems like there's always something new. It can be very overwhelming to try and tackle even just starting to integrate that into your learning environment. So I think that conversation needs to happen more in communities of it is okay. How do you be a facilitator of learning when we are so used to the sage on the stage, one talking to many? And how can we use, how can we leverage youth to teach other youth and to teach themselves. Totally fair point and that's actually a good segue because kind of the second or tail end of that opening question is when you're working with these you know young people in these different hive learning communities and networks mm -hmm. how are you helping them understand that whatever they're doing that day whether it's you know something silly like creating an animated gif or something complicated like you know building their own robot actually relates to you know life outside of school or life five ten years from now are you making those connections explicit for them or is it more you know kind of a, a soft sell if you would I can 
Sorry, go ahead, Lindsay. You take this one. Sure, yeah. I could. I can just jump in and and give an example. Last Saturday, um, we had hosted a maker party event here in Chattanooga, which is Mozilla's global campaign happening all over the world to teach the web. Um, we had about 175 kids come through that day, and we had coached each of our table leaders um, to sort of make a soft tie-in. So maybe mention some other activities that these youth could get involved with or some career pathways or after school activities that they could become engaged with. But then we followed up um, or will follow up our drafting a follow up um, to parents of the attendees with some harder sell. This is how you get engaged. This is how you follow up. So it's a both and thing for us, I think, particularly with Maker Party where there's, it's a one off event, but then we follow up. So, so some of the youth program that, that we do here, um, um, we, we don't, I find that the kids don't, as long as it's engaging, the kids don't need to be told how it, uh, as long as it's fun, they don't, they don't really care if this is going to get them a job or it's going to relate to the real world. Uh, the parents need that more than the kids do. Um, so for them, it's, it's, um, it's a little more explicit. Um, and, uh, and same with the teachers. The teachers need that as well. It's a little more explicit to explain how uh, what they're doing relates to the real world. Um, the other thing that we do, and we're lucky because here at Mars we have a huge pool of really interesting entrepreneurs who are working on the strangest projects you could imagine. And what we do for when we throw parties and events and stuff is we just bring in entrepreneurs to speak, uh, to show their products, to tell their stories. Um, and in that way, the kids realize that uh, real life consists of thousands of mini experiments where you're doing silly things like making gifts or whatever, and and that these entrepreneurs are um, kind of inspirational in that they show the strange pathway that starts with an idea and ends in a product and market, or that ends in something real. And that the kinds of learning that entrepreneurs go through is exactly the kinds of stuff that we're experimenting with at Hive. Um, so by that, we just show by we we explain by example, and the kids kind of, um, you know, if they meet, like usually what we do is every morning there's an entrepreneur, every lunch there's an entrepreneur who comes in and tells a story, and they just constantly get reinforced that um, that the kind this kind of self-directed learning is really the only way of creating value. Uh, in in uh, in the kind of economy that we're seeing start to emerge. Very cool, and love that you know learning by example model, which you know we could definitely use more of. I know in in formal learning environments, it's a little tougher to to work that in in terms of you know curriculum and assessments and and tests like that. So having spaces like this where that is kind of the norm is great. Um, Vanille, I wanted to see if we can touch base with you on this question real quick in terms of how you're relating what kids are doing in, in Hive India to kind of real life or, or life outside. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I, if you can see the WebMaker party, the main page, the India, India would be like trending with maker parties. So you can uh, like understand like there is a, uh, a huge interest to learn uh, new things out of the school. Even the uh, the school uh, officials are inviting us to uh, host this uh, uh, web maker events, maker party events. So uh, so we have been doing like uh, almost five events a week, uh, starting this web maker event. So, 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 yeah. Like, like, there has been a huge interest in this domain, and we are thinking on how to, how best we can scale in moving forward. Very cool, Vanille. Thanks for sharing. And Joe, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to open it up to the group as well. You talked about this kind of mentorship model that you have going on in your particular space. And I wanted to see if that was you know, similar across the spaces, if you have um, kind of experts or mentors being you know, imparting their wisdom constantly, or is it more kind of hands-off and, and let kids explore and, and create and make and 
maybe the occasional guidance? Um, what are some of the different models you find yourselves working with? I'll take, I'll answer part of this, or try to. Uh, when, one thing we do holistically uh, with all of our members when we're doing a maker party or a pop-up event that is youth-facing, and we're collaborating to create uh, almost like an interactive science fair feel. Uh, actually, we ran a giant one in London, UK, and Vanille was there last year, a few other hives, uh, to really highlight what that maker party hands-on model is like. And so other youth could attend, but other educators that were there could see what it was like as well. And one of, one of the things that we really try to highlight and stress is allowing youth to learn through making. And as an educator, that sometimes means physically, it sounds so simple, but like physically putting your hands behind your back. It is so tempting even just to want to take over the keyboard or move that mouse just a little bit faster or like help with a makey-makey. Um, but those hands-on experiences allow young people to try, fail, go back, tweak. Uh, and then with our members in their own organizations, there's quite the spectrum. There are some people who are experts, and within Hive and Mozilla, we try to work open, which is sharing knowledge, sharing experiences, sharing challenges. And so naturally, certain people kind of rise as rise stand out as mentors, uh, and then other people stand out as learners. And depending on the topic or the area, different people show different levels of expertise. And uh, so we really try to recognize that we are a network. We are here to learn from each other. And there's that opportunity of you to find another way to uh, bring, learn something that you can bring back to your youth. So adult mentorship, but then also youth mentorship. Some of our organizations are really great at that, and others are really striving to integrate that and learning at trying to figure out how to do that better. Um, I, I think too, um, one of the things that we track closely at Mars, and I mean the this kind of the mentorship model is how Mars functions as a as a charity, as an organization. We've got about uh, 200 volunteer advisors who mentor entrepreneurs when they come in, um, and we've and we've kind of tried to take that model and bring it down to the youth level. Uh, there are some key differences. Um, and we also are really kind of brutal in our, value, our internal evaluation of mentors. I mean, um, some of them make great entrepreneurs. They tell a great story, like one way. Uh, but they're just not uh, good mentors at a face-to-face -face level or in a group level because they don't keep their hands behind their back. You know, they, they tell, they say, oh, that'll fail or, or this is what you need to do instead of kind of pulling out or asking those leading questions that good teachers do. Um, and so we, we are very uh, honest about the fact that we only invite back the mentors that have made the kids feel really good and made the kids create their own knowledge instead of just trying to stuff knowledge into their heads. Um, and, and that's really important to us because the value of our programming hinges on the quality of the mentors and the advisors that, um, uh, that we get. And, um, you know, and and we're also starting to put that very explicitly into our, our training for mentors and try and both uh, through example and through explicit um, uh, demoing exactly what makes for a good mentor. You know, th th that idea that a mentor is somebody who is there for support and is there to facilitate but is not there to, um, to push not push. Uh, either their own points of view or their own knowledge on 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 kids, especially, uh, and it's tough. It's tough to make that switch, but uh, but it's really important to the core of the program. Lindsay or Benil, anything to add to this one? Well, I'll just add that um, you know part of the work we've done is to try to lift up through Hive programming and and other um, partnerships in Chattanooga. The teachers who are doing a really great job being that hands-off mentor. So um, we have a couple of great Hive teachers, um, 
who we really like to share out the work they're doing and the maker parties they're hosting and the other events they're having. Um, Chattanooga also had last week an event that they called Teacherpreneur, which I love that uh, amalgamation of a word, that the Public Education Foundation and Benwood Foundation hosted here that really celebrated the work of 28 really entrepreneurial teachers. They had a pitch night. They presented their entrepreneurial ideas, and um, 10 of them will receive funding. So it was another mechanism of celebrating these excellent entrepreneurial mentor teachers who do know how to you know, stand back and do great work um, and let their kids sort of make and learn and create. Very cool. And Benil? Oh, maybe not. Oh, there we go. Go ahead, Vinil. Yeah. So, so uh, our our, uh, our our mentors are. We have a very interesting demographics with her. So, so here we actively work with the Mozilla community. So, who are uh, who come from different backgrounds, students, uh, who are working in uh, companies, and who are. Uh, some mentors are very young and they have started themselves and see like attending one of the uh, our, uh, events and then they got interested in that and then they started mentoring new people. So it's, it's mostly organically grown uh, a team. Yeah, the, the, the team which we have is is uh, mostly organically grown team, uh, like like uh, who say maybe as someone who has attended our events and uh, uh, so so yeah, like like so uh, these people play a very important role because they'll be the ones who will be uh, actually building the next next generation of. Uh, Makers and doers, and, and, uh, and, and these people are pretty, very much proud uh, in doing this work. And, and uh, we, every 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 day we have new people uh, coming on board to learn something about how to get involved with the activities. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting. And that's great when you have people actually coming to you and not necessarily having to <laughs> go and fish for people. That's great to hear. Um, we had touched on this a little bit in that, that last round of conversations, but this idea of you know, permitting kids to quote-unquote fail or at least you know, not succeed on their first try. Uh, I know that is a concept that um, you don't necessarily see as much in formal learning. I mean, we have grade systems that actually, you know, grade you on how well you did or did not fail. Uh, and I just wanted to get a sense from all of you in terms of how you're explaining this concept to both kids and, and parents, this permission to fail concept, and how you've seen that work out uh, in real life and maybe you have examples or, or stories from your respective communities. I can jump in there. Um, so the projects we've funded through Hive Chattanooga so far via the Mozilla Gigabit Community Fund have been very explicit in being um, tech betas. Um, these are applications and curricula that are brand new. Um, and so through that, we've been able to explain to the youth testing them that they're the, they're the beta testers. Things are going to go wrong. It's going to fail. They're going to have challenges with that technology. Um, but that's okay that the people leading the, these programs need their feedback. So they've been really empowered to fail and it'd be okay and to give strong feedback and to try it again. Um, I, I think I think Lindsay's right, and that was a nice description. Um, I think one of the things that we try to emphasize, and I should preface this by saying I think this is one of the a, a really hard thing to do, and I don't actually, frankly, know how to teach failure. Like it's, I don't I don't know how to do it. Um, I mean, one of the things we're starting to do is is, and again, this comes back from the feedback we get from venture capitalists who who say, what do you look for in a team? And one of the things is, how do they deal with failure? Because their product is going to fail. Like, it just is. So how do they pivot? How do they adapt? Um, so what we're trying to do is figure out how to fail mindfully. So when you fail, what are the, what's the self-reflection process? How do you tease apart 
the pieces that worked and the pieces that didn't. Um, how do you tell the story of your failure? Um, uh, and, and it's and it's really hard thing to do, and I don't exactly know how to do that. And especially, I don't know how to do that um, and show that to teachers because teachers, in particular, are 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 just trained to be the people who don't fail. You know, the class fails, and you mark them on that, but you don't because you're the teacher and you're the repository of all the knowledge. And you know, I, actually, Catherine and I were in a meeting a little while ago with some teachers. And one of them said, and this was a beautifully honest moment, she just said, I feel if, if I'm the facilitator and I don't know the content or how to use those tools better than the students, I don't feel like I'm earning my paycheck. That that feeling of being in charge and not failing is so ingrained at the teacher level, it's hard for them to model what that looks like for the students. And, and I quite frankly don't know how to do that. That's kind of an open question mark for me as well. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. And Catherine, go ahead. What I love about what you just said was I don't know how to do that, but you're still doing it anyways. And so that is, I think, the philosophy and approach that like, even a little bit, if we adopt that as educators, as practitioners, in school, out of school, I think modeling that and saying that out loud to students, to your learners, goes a long way. Um, I was trying to, as I love these conversations. It always like, gives me a chance to reflect on my practice, see kind of what's going on out there in the educational world, and stay in touch with that. And I was thinking, like, what is even just a very small way to integrate some of these concepts? If I'm a teacher or an out-of-school educator that has no funding, no access to technology, no tools, like I um, have no time, which is a lot of our high Toronto members, what can I do? And I think it's that encouraging that metacognition, that thinking about thinking uh, in your students, even if you have to do something that is totally out of a book and they get a bad mark or they make something in an after-school program and it doesn't turn out the way they want. Uh, I think there's a lot you can do with that. And we try to, in our maker parties, we try to have a demo piece, almost like a show and tell at the end, which is that chance to help young people voice that part. So even if you're not finished, which to kids, show and tell is like a, it has to be done. It has to be ready to be shown. And it's like, no, even if you're not done, what did you learn? If you had more time, what would you do differently? What did you like? What did you not like? And so even that piece, that like five minutes of reflection uh, can be integrated into almost any, and it doesn't even need to be like on a stage kind of thing, in a starting those conversations peer to peer or uh, facilitator, educator to youth, um, and then as well modeling it as an educator. Sometimes things go wrong. Things go wrong a lot with technology, especially if you have a lot of restrictions. And that is an opportunity. That's a great point. And uh, Lindsay, in terms of, actually, I think you started us off there, so my bad. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I um, want to learn a little bit more. And let's see. Let's see how to word this exactly. Um, what are some of the other challenges you find yourself coming up against? in terms of getting inquiry-based learning more accepted outside of Hive Learning Networks, whether that is with the educators you're working with or the um, program partners you might have? Is it you know, as easy as explaining, you know, here are some stories or here are some examples of why this works? Or have you found there are some other obstacles and challenges that, that stand in the way a little bit? Uh, I, meant, I mentioned this a little bit uh, earlier, but um, I, I think, again, the, the students don't need convincing, and, and there are less obstacles for a youth level because kids just want to follow their nose, right? They just want to follow the things that uh, invigorate them. And, you know, all kids want to learn something, something. Um, the tough part is with the adults. The tough part is with teachers who, and because I'm, my background is teaching, I get this. 
how do you assess this when you don't know what it's going to look like at the end? How do you assess something where you don't really know what the final product's going to be or, or where it's going to live or, or, or what direction it's going to take? So there's, there needs to be real attention uh, moved towards assessing process rather than, than product, which is not easy to do, uh, especially in the world we live in, which is um, more and more obsessed with the kind of standardized test model of trying to churn out the exact same uh, the exact same kinds of kinds of knowledge and all these different kinds of people, which is ludicrous that we've got this inquiry-based kind of 21st century skills process model and this kind of double down on the whole kind of, uh, we, you know, luckily in Canada we don't have like no child left behind, but we've got our own kind of tyranny of standardized tests that get administered every year and there's more and more attention paid to those. So assessment is a big one with teachers. And the other big obstacle is with parents. With young kids, it seems to be okay, you know, uh, you know, um, inquiry, play-based learning, it's kind of part of it. But then there's this idea, well, they should just grow up, though, at some point. And, and, and at some point, you know, um, parents start to get anxious when they're like, well, this isn't, this isn't what, you know, a school looked like when I was a kid. Are you sure they're actually learning something here? Like, I just want them to get a good mark in calculus. Come on. Um, you know, so, so there's a real disconnect between what parents want to see or what they think they should see in terms of what real learning looks like, especially at a school level. Even, even kind of after school uh, programs, um, you know, that's the way it's structured sometimes can, um, can kind of be a real problem for, for the adults who think they know what's best for kids but often um, are woefully misinformed. I'll just add in, um, so in Chandigarh, you, you know, you're absolutely right, it's, it's a challenge to get buy-in on these inquiry-based methods, but so we're sort of taking a dual approach in our community more broadly beyond just our hive work. Um, so uh, at a low level, we're um, finding those entrepreneurial teachers on each hallway in different schools and doing some, you know, some problem-based learning, project-based learning, um, and some other, you know, low-hanging fruit projects that then can become examples to share out of how you do this in a way that um, has an assessment built in, has parent buy-in, has community buy-in. While at the same time we're working with a lot of organizations around town like our local public education foundation, like our school board, to explain and share, tell the story of why these approaches matter and how they're helping our community long-term through workforce development. And Catherine or Vanille, anything to add there? Vanille, I know um, you might have a little bit of a different view coming from India and not necessarily having the same educational um, system issues as the U.S. Yeah, I, I, yeah the, the, con the context here is a bit, a bit different. And also, like, like, uh, uh, we are here to, so we are, we are, you can say, like, we are uh, aiming to become a high uh, formal network very uh, hopefully soon. So we are pretty much uh, 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 willing to learn from uh, the existing high networks like uh, High Toronto, High New York, and take some learning and see how we can uh, remix them for, for the Indian, Indian uh, audience. Thanks for sharing that. And actually to, to that point real quick, and I know um, Catherine, you had mentioned a connection with Benil a little bit earlier, but I wanted to understand better how all of these different global Hive learning networks work together. Um, is there kind of a, a constant connection to each other and efforts to you know, work with each other on projects or is it more of a kind of shared purpose and support network? This kind of came about organically when we realized that uh, the Hive model, which is open and available for people to implement in their own communities, uh, when we realized people were adopting that without us even really putting up putting that out there. And so we've really only started to harness that in probably the last six months. And so we're trying to think strategically about 
how can this model be used in different places uh, around the world, like regardless of culture, regardless of uh, learning environments. And so it has started, and we've seen it picked up in India, Indonesia, Berlin, uh, in Canada, it looks like Vancouver is starting to build something. And uh, it kind of started being just really ad hoc and sharing strategies. like from one hive to another. Well, how do you do this? We have this challenge in our hive, and our educators are facing this. What do you do? Um, and uh, actually, the, pro the project I mentioned earlier, Radiozilla, the audio documentaries, that was inspired by a project that had already been done uh, in the New York hive. And so we're starting to see some of those connections blossom, but we're really figuring out how can we further strengthen those connections, and then also, use this model and do more of an outreach approach uh, around the world. So we do have someone that we've been able to hire to work on that and to support those communities that are kind of popping up. And again, recognizing it looks different in different places. Uh, for Toronto, we are a Hive Learning Network, which means that we have someone that works on it full time, myself. Uh, we have a pool of funding that we can make available to the network, and we do have regular activities. And then there's the Hive community, which is more less of a funding, less of an operations budget. And then there's Hive events, which is how Hive Toronto started out, which was really bringing community together around events uh, to see what could happen and where we could go from there. And Joe, Lindsay, or Vanille, how are you guys connecting with one another and, and different hive networks. Well, I'll just add that as a you know, as a newer hive in this network, so Kansas City and Chattanooga just began in February. We've really benefited from that global hive approach, and um, as newer people, hopefully we've been able to help build out those platforms to scale and spread that networked approach. Um, it's really been incredibly helpful for me to be able to get, call Catherine and say, hey, can you help me with our um, RFP for our grants? Or an educator in our community is having this challenge. How would you approach it? So that's been enormously helpful for us, and we try to provide um, that resource for our network members as well on a local level. Hi, uh, Mark. Oh, video, you want? Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, Mars itself is um, is not a Hive uh, hub, but of course is is um, a member of Hive Toronto. Um, and for me, all it's meant is when I travel, when I go to New York or or whatever, there's people on the ground that I can meet, um, which is 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 hugely hugely important because you know education systems have such kind of regional quirks um, uh, that it's so useful just getting a drink with somebody and just talking about um, how, like, how weird things are in different parts of, of the states or in Canada or in Europe or India or China, uh, you know, and, and really just going deep um, and, you know, uh, like the pot, little pop-ups and um, ad hoc kind of meetups in places. Um, it just expands the network of people who are interested in change in the education space um, and it provides a real face-to-face uh, and it can provide a real face-to-face -face version of that. You know, there's you know there's lots of online forums where you can share stuff, but actually having a conversation and meeting some real teachers who who you know go through the grind every day can be really really um, important for context. Agreed. You can't really replace face-to-face. -face. Sorry for the bad rhyme there, but <laughs> Vanille, you wanted to add on? Yes, yeah, so, uh, like Catherine said, uh, I was uh, part of the Mozilla Festival. Uh, connected cities uh, session. There we learn most most of the uh, best practices on how how say like how high uh, tourism started or how not started, and uh, there were different uh, directors from each of these high networks. And because we are just getting started, so it was very really helpful. After that, uh, we had in touch via email and uh, uh, called. The, the, the usual calls that happen uh, led to the high network 
so so yeah like uh, also like again we we are hoping to make like meet uh in the next upcoming mozilla festival in person and share and what worked and what didn't work and how, how we can take this to the next level so so yeah pretty much excited about that very cool look forward to seeing and hearing more from hive india uh, and hard to believe, but kind of like I mentioned, uh, 60 minutes has flown by almost. And so I wanted to give everyone uh, a little chance to have some final thoughts and share some final thoughts. And I thought maybe a little bit of a kind of brain teaser question, which maybe we won't be able to fully answer here, is you know, imagine it's five, six years in the future. How has Hive Toronto, Hive Chattanooga, Hive India changed for the better. Um, what do you see being different? What do you see staying the same? And why don't we go ahead and do left to right again like we did in the beginning. So Joe, if you want to start us off. Sure. I mean, um, I mean, success for me would just be moving the needle on um, kind of the philosophy of inquiry learning and connected learning in classrooms. Um, I think that's the real challenge and that's something that at Mars we've kind of got our, our, our focus on and whether that's through Mars's own programming or um, through our through the entrepreneurs that come through our doors who have interesting uh, projects that they're selling into schools or partnering with schools. Um, so there's a kind of direct tactical piece for us but then there's the systems level change which is notoriously slow uh, but you know you just try and find the, the uh, you know, find the cracks of light and use them as wedges and get in any way you can. And so in five or six years, um, I would just really like to see just a, a little more recognition of, uh, uh, of inquiry-based uh, learning. Thanks, Joe. And Catherine? Uh, everything Joe said. <laughs> and then also, uh, I think now there is starting to be a shift of educators knowing the value of this kind of learning and wanting to integrate it, uh, but not knowing how. So having Hive and related communities and like the Connected Learning Alliance really be beacons uh, for those educators, so that they're they don't. It's such a shame when people have that spark and they want to integrate it, but then they don't know what to do or where to go. And so knowing that these are places where you can get resources and support and community, uh, because this work is hard. <laughs> this is hard. And I think the way to achieve what Joe is talking about, that systems change, is with perseverance, but also a community of support. Great point. Thank you. And Lindsay? Sure. Um, you know, earlier we talked about how teachers are moving from stage on stage to being a facilitator and a mentor. And I think that's sort of how I envision our success as well. In five to six years, my job, I hope, is more telling of the awesome stories of how these connected learning principles are being enacted in my community and less about having to, you know, build events and build everyday um, programs to make them happen. I hope they're happening at such a scale that really my job becomes standing back and um, raising up these awesome teachers and educators who are making it happen. And some send some of that my way when you get there. <laughs> and Vanille, last words? Sure. So, so we'll keep experimenting for the next, next uh, couple of months and uh, uh, hopefully we'll formalize most of our learnings and, and uh, see how we can scale in India and, and uh, maybe in a couple of years we, uh, we see the success by uh, the number of, because each year uh, by the number of uh, uh, curriculum that we build and the number of mentors that we have, so that's how we see their success. Great, thanks Manil. So thank you again, everyone, for a really thoughtful and, and helpful conversation. I know personally I learned a lot about how Hive works and, and what you guys are all striving for. Um, so we will have a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv and other curated content is on the way that you can share with your network, especially if they weren't able to catch this live today. And this wraps up the first webinar of this month-long series, um, but that doesn't mean that our conversations just have to stop and fall flat here. Uh, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going 
by using the hashtag connected learning and the Hive Learning Networks also has a hashtag that they use. It's Hive Buzz, um, Buzz with two Z's, and by getting involved in the Connected Learning Google Plus community. And I hope you'll all mark your calendars for Tuesday, August 12th at 9 a.m. Pacific, and that's 12 noon Eastern. We're going to have our second webinar of the month chatting with members of the online model United Nations. Um, it's the first model United Nations program that happens uh, almost exclusively online. And to learn more about you know the awesome work and the great people behind Hive Learning Networks, uh, please check out the website hivelearningnetworks.org. So thanks again, everybody. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.